never says that the lamb might be too small. Rather, it says that if the household is too small for that lamb, then they may join together with others and share it with others. In other words, this lamb is going to be sufficient for them. Just as Jesus is more than sufficient for us, we're, we're never going to be lacking or left for want when we put our trust and our hope in Jesus Christ. He's all that we need. Amen to that. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. It's a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Now, interestingly, uh, it, it says that be without blemish. Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.19 that, that, but without the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And now a blemish was something that was an acquired defect and a spot was an inherited defect. Christ has neither, he's perfect, he's sinless, he's all that we need. So this lamb here, they're to gather in to be without blemish. Now that lamb, this is interesting, the lamb would be gathered on the 10th of Nisan and it'd be brought in the household where this lamb now would live with the family. There would, they would begin to grow in just kind of even like fellowship and relationship. This lamb would become part of the family being with them in the home for those next four days. They would learn to just kind of love this lamb. It would be brought under close watch and scrutiny as well during those four days. And the lamb would become a very precious sacrifice it would be cherished, and it would also be mourned at its death. It, it's wonderful to see the timing of this and the way also that Jesus, you know, fulfilled everything so exactly because what happened? Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on that 10th day of Nisan, being heralded, declared, praised as, you know, the Messiah, right? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're recognizing this is, this is the guy. And he comes into Jerusalem now for the next four days. What's happening? He's under scrutiny, under close watch, under the religious authorities' eyes. People are, are watching. People are observing. They're trying to find a way to discredit him. And it would lead, coming in on the 10th day of Nisan, four days later, to being crucified on that Passover Eve, the 14th of Nisan, just as they're told to do here in Exodus 12. Meaning Jesus was crucified on the Thursday, I believe. Not Good Friday, but the Thursday. That's a whole other thing that we can talk about another time. But the timing of that is, is perfect. Coming in on that, on that Sunday 10th of Nisan, crucified on the Thursday, four days later. And they're told now, it, it says in, um, in verse 7, take some of the blood now after sacrificing that lamb on that 14th day of Nisan, after having it in your house for four days living with you, Take some of that blood now, put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel, the, the cross piece of the door, the top of the door. Now placing the, the blood on the two doorposts and the top cross beam had intriguing significance. God said in verse 13, we'll get to it in a minute, but God says in verse 13, this shall be a sign for you. How so? Well, it would be a picture, no doubt, of a, a sacrifice that's needed and a blood sacrifice at that. Why, why blood? Because the life is in the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or forgiveness of sins. 
And so blood would be placed there. A sacrifice is needed. Life would be given for life to be spared. We, we have the idea that we understand that. But as they cover the doorpost, perhaps these Hebrews would be seeing more than kind of meets the eye. There are three Hebrew letters that could potentially be seen by applying the blood in this way. You got three Hebrew letters, He, Chet, and the Tav. These are three things that could easily be seen if you're putting the blood on each side of the doorpost and the lintel on the top. He, interestingly, means breath. This is seen in God's creative power and speaking forth the world into existence. He breathes into us and he gives us life. Now the numeric value of that letter He, as, as every Hebrew letter has a numeric value to it, is the letter, is the number five, which speaks of grace in the Bible. It's the biblical number for grace. See, this work of God, seen at Passover, is a work of grace towards us. Just as Jesus died for us to provide salvation, none of us deserve it. We simply receive it freely by the grace of God. So we have that letter, but we also have the chet, and that means life. The numeric value of this letter is eight, which represents a new beginning, meaning a new order or creation. Eight is also an integral part of Jesus' sacrifice, like the Passover lamb. Jesus was selected as a lamb to take away man's sins on, on the 10th of Nisan. He was crucified on the 14th of Nisan. His resurrection then occurs, what, three days later. That's eight days afterwards. From the time Christ was selected as man's sacrificial lamb was eight days. All this bears, or sorry, until his resurrection, eight days. All that bears record of Jesus' perfect sacrifice and his complete victory over death. A new beginning we have now in and through Christ. And then we have tov. And tov means mark or sign or, or covenant. Now, the third letter and final letter of the Hebrew alphabet is this letter tav. The original pictograph for the tav was a cross, interestingly. We'll, we'll see that in a second. I'll put that up there. That's the original Hebrew letter of this letter Tav. Now, so they wouldn't have seen it in this way when they're put on the doorpost because this wasn't created. But now later in time, as they're writing these letters and they see the Tav, they perhaps would bring to mind, ah, oh, I remember when we put the blood upon the door in that way. And how that reminds us of that mark and sign that God provided for us to find life, to have salvation, to experience that grace of God. So very interesting. Interestingly too, is um, the numeric value of this is 400. 400, well, Genesis 15 verse 13 says that they would be in Egypt for 400 years. Now we'll see later on that number becomes 430, perhaps in Genesis 15, that's just being rounded out to 400. But again, it would be a number that they'd be reminded of, of what God said to Abraham of how they would be in Egypt for 400 years. Now, listen, I, I don't want to put a lot of, you know, extra um, emphasis on these things or add more meaning than is intended, but it's interesting to see some of the correlation that perhaps is, as they're writing, just they're in, in their Hebrew alphabet using these letters, just upon some of these letters, just being reminded again of that work that God did on that first Passover for them. We know that God's a God of great design and perhaps these are all there to bring further reminders 
to the Hebrew people of all that God has done and, and will indeed do. Well, verse eight, continuing on here, verse eight says, then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning and what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. So first of all, they're told, eat the flesh. See, this sacrifice was something that they were to take in and, and appropriate to themselves now. This is something they were to take in, not just look at it at a distance, not just kind of observe, but they were now to take this in as to be a part of them. Interestingly, John, Jesus says in John 6, verse 53 to 55, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. Now, let me just, you know, kind of give some disclaimers on that because we know Jesus is not saying you need to literally eat his flesh, but he's, what he's saying is you need to appropriate who I am and what I've done for you and, and apply that to your life now. Jesus is not just somebody to kind of observe at a distance and go, oh, Jesus, great guy. Yes, I believe he did some great things. No, we need to take him in and say, Jesus, I wanna, I wanna feed on you. I want your life to be my life. I don't wanna just look from a distance. I wanna appropriate all that you have for me now. That's the idea here. They're to eat of the flesh and it's to be roasted in fire. Again, that pictures the judgment for our sin, doesn't it? Because Jesus went to the cross and he took the very fire of God's wrath upon himself, the judgment that we deserved so that we could be set free and spared. He took the fire of God's wrath for our sin. So it's roasted in fire. And they're to eat with bitter herbs. That's a reminder of what our sin is like. Sin might be fun for a season. Sin might be enjoyable for a time, but understand something, it will leave you bitter. It will leave a bitter taste in your mouth because you'll soon realize that sin never satisfies. Sin can never deliver on the promise that the enemy is trying to give you to participate in that sin, it will never deliver. It will leave a bitter taste in your mouth and leave you very discontent. And so the take of this with bitter herbs is a reminder of all they've done. As we partake of pastoral, those bitter herbs remind us of the, the years of slavery that they were in in Egypt and how, again, God wanted to set them free from that. You shall let none of it remain, it also says there in verse 10. You shall let none of it remain. See, this sacrifice was not to be applied in part, it was to be wholly consumed. Jesus is not some, someone that we apply in part. We're to take all of him. He's the one that we put our faith completely in. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, the work is done. He's not performing a continuing work or process of sacrifice where we have to continually come to him in part. It's done. It's complete, we must receive him completely. Anything that remains that is not of him is gonna be burned with fire, as it says here. We've talked a bit about that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter three. If we're bringing things that are not of the Lord, we're trying to add on to the things of Christ that's not of Christ, those things are gonna be burned away. And verse 11, unless you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, 
your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In the King James Version, it says, and thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, <laughs> which is the idea here now, as men in this day would wear these long robes, and whenever they were gonna go on a, a journey or they had work to do or they were gonna have to get moving quickly, they would gird their loins, they would take up that robe, they'd pull up, they would, they would put it in their belt. That's what it says here. Belt on your waist, sandals on your feet. In other words, you're gonna partake of this in haste because you are not to remain here any longer. You are gonna be getting ready to go. You're gonna have to be ready to move. God is saying, get ready for this exodus out of Egypt. And he says to you and me, be ready for this exodus out of the world. Jesus has paved the way. Let's be ready now to take this journey. Let's not have something that is going to hold us back, trip us up, slow us down in serving the Lord and in being ready for the Lord. God's showing, I'm bringing you out of this place and it's gonna be quick. Be ready. Be ready to move. Get that robe tucked up there, you know, Get those new short style going here with that robe and let's be ready to move unencumbered without anything that's gonna trip us up. And note the element of faith that's involved here because they're told to get ready to go yet they're not necessarily free at this point. Pharaoh hasn't given them the green light. They're all, they're all maybe sitting here wondering like, well, wait a second. You know, if we try to go, Pharaoh's gonna come down hard on us, man. We gotta, we gotta wait till maybe he softens a little bit Let's take, some, let's take some precautionary measures here, God. Like, let's not, don't rush us here. It, no, it takes a step of faith now to go, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna suit up and we're gonna get ready to move now. You know, we've been put in a similar place, haven't we? Because when we come to Christ and we accept his salvation and sacrifice for our sins, we're no longer to be lingering in this world. Now, there may be issues that arise that need to be dealt with, but we're to take that journey by faith and begin to move forward in all that God has for us. Not, not being distracted or hindered by the things of this world, but ready to move forward in all that God has for us because he's in control and he's working all things out. So let us have those loins girded up, people, and let's be ready to continue on in all that God has for us, keeping our eyes upon him, stepping out in faith in all that he has for us. God says in verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. If any of you have been wondering, where, where does this name Passover comes from? It's right there. I will pass over you. I hope that's not, you know, a, a revolutionary light bulb moment for you. I hope that's something that's all kind of, you know, sunk in before here. But here God is giving them this work that he's going to do. Now, the firstborn, as is pointed out here, I'm, I'm going to strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The firstborn was the one that had that position of prominence and favor, especially in Pharaoh's household because the firstborn of Pharaoh, that person was seen as a god. He was seen as though he had divine properties. I mean, that's how they, they looked at that firstborn of Pharaoh specifically. But the firstborn was a, a position of great 
honor. But God is showing all of Egypt now that no one is safe without that obedience to and application of his means of salvation. Every person is going to need to follow what God is prescribing as the means of salvation. Not even Pharaoh's godlike son is going to be spared from this if they don't apply what God is giving them to do. See, when God is finished, and this is the point of all these plagues, when God is finished, Egypt is going to know that their gods have been powerless to save them, and Yahweh is the one true God, the God of Israel. He's the God that is all-powerful, greater than any other gods that we might worship. That's what Egypt is going to come to know. That's what Pharaoh is going to come to know. Again, the only thing that would spare households was when God saw the blood applied. Now think about that. It wasn't enough just to take a lamb into your household. It wasn't enough just to kind of name that lamb and befriend that lamb, have it with you for those four days. It wasn't enough just to sacrifice the lamb. You needed to take the blood and apply the blood upon the door. It had to have that covering over your house. See, Jesus has shed his blood for the whole world, but not all the world is saved. People need to move from just believing that Jesus was, and they need to personally acknowledge the need for that sacrifice. They need to apply that blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. There's a lot of people that haven't taken that step. They'll say, oh, I believe in God. Oh, sure, I believe Jesus was a good guy but they have failed to apply the blood. They have failed to come under that covering that Jesus provides for you. There are many people that go to church and have gone so close. So, well, I've, I, I, I've worshiped Jesus. I've sung songs to him. I've done all these things. I believe Jesus, but they have failed to apply the very means of salvation and atonement and covering that they need to be right with God. And that's where some people get a little bit squeamish, including many contemporary theologians as they begin to talk about the blood of Jesus. It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. There are many churches that say, we don't want to talk about the blood of Jesus. Listen, there's, there's nothing, and let me just be clear, there's nothing magical about the blood of Jesus. It simply signifies that a complete sacrifice was made. Jesus laid down his life for us, and it's through his sacrifice that we can be saved, forgiven of our sin. And many people don't want to talk about the blood of Jesus any longer. Charles Spurgeon was responding to this attitude when he wrote this. We do not subscribe to the lax theology which teaches that the Lord Jesus did something or other which in some way or other is in some degree or other connected with the salvation of men. We firmly believe the doctrine of the atoning death of our great substitute. We stand to the literal substitution of Jesus Christ in the place of his people and his real endurance of suffering and death in their stead. And from this distinct and definite ground, we will not move an inch. Even the term the blood from which some shrink with the affectation of great delicacy, we shall not cease to use, whoever may take offense at it, for it brings out that fundamental truth which is the power of God unto salvation. We dwell beneath the blood mark and rejoice that Jesus for us poured out his soul unto death. 
And we thank the Lord for that. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus by which we are saved, by which we find covering, atonement, salvation. So the blood needs to be applied. I pray that you have applied the blood to your life, that you have come and recognized it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we put our faith in. He died to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin, and it's through his atoning sacrifice that we are saved. Verse 14, so this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. Verse 17 so you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on the same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month on the 14th day of the month at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses since whoever eats what is leavened that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is being instituted here, and this ran right after Passover, the day after. It will last for seven days from the 15th to the 21st of Nisan. Feast of First Fruits came during that time as well, on the 16th of Nisan. That pictures the resurrection. Jesus becomes the first fruits of our resurrection, right? So that happens now. And these feasts have all been incorporated really into the celebration now of Passover. And, the, and, and referencing the Passover can speak of all three feasts in a sense. So when you hear Passover, it's oftentimes incorporating Feast of Unleavened Bread that starts right after for a week. Feast of, uh, of First Fruits is involved in that as well. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a time for them to purge their homes of all leaven. They would remove everything. They would search out their homes, everything. And, and, and uh, we were in Israel, was it last? I think last time we were in Israel. We were there just leading up to Passover. And you, you go down the you know, streets of Jerusalem uh, and there's people out there in the restaurants and they're just removing everything from the restaurants. They're hosing everything down. They're just cleansing everything. Things are shut down, closed, and they are just doing a thorough, thorough cleaning out of everything. And so here, they're told to purge their homes of all leaven. They were to now break, bake their bread, it's hard to say, bake their bread without leaven as, as that would be an indication that, again, you're gonna be fleeing quickly. Gird up your loins, get ready to move, eat that in haste, and now don't worry about baking bread with leaven, waiting for it to rise. You don't even have time for that to rise. You're to bake your bread without leaven. In fact, you're to enjoy seven days now without leaven because you're gonna be eating this now in haste as you are gonna be getting ready to flee from Egypt. Leaven is, of course, a picture of sin in the Bible. And it's so very fitting to see the correlation of all these things. After receiving salvation and deliverance from the Lord, 
We should no longer be living a life of sin. Sin is something that we turn away from, that we repent from when we receive salvation, Lord. We turn to the Lord to say, I don't want to live this life any longer. And so after deliverance, they're to continue on now without leaven, without sin. We should no longer be living a life of sin. It should be cut away as we seek to live pure and holy lives for the Lord. Not out of religious duty, but because of what Jesus has done for us. It should be our heart's desire to say, Jesus, you gave it all up for us. So now I want to live my life in a manner that is worthy and pleasing to you, God, that, that glorifies you. Paul would write, we're going to be looking at this in, on Sunday. Look at this, how this overlaps here. We're going to be chapter 5 on Sunday of 1 Corinthians. And it says in verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul is bringing this picture into play. Christ has sacrificed himself for you as the Passover lamb. So let us now no longer continue leaven. It just takes a little bit of leaven to leaven the whole lump. Just takes a little bit. Purify yourselves from that because Christ was sacrificed for us. So let's continue on now, observing, keeping the feast as we celebrate and worship and serve the Lord. Well, verse 21, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb and you shall take a bunch of hyssop Dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. Verse 25, it'll come to pass when you come to the land, which the Lord will give you just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service that you shall say? It's the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So this memorial now is being established that will continue throughout their generations and indeed celebrated today. It's a wonderful thing as we've, as we've done over the years, celebrated Passover, we've put on Passover Seders, but we just get to follow through all that Israel has celebrated for, for centuries and observe these things, but how we get to see how all these things have been so wonderfully fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. And how we pray for our, 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 our Jewish brothers and sisters to have their eyes open and to see what they are actually observing has all had their fulfillment in and through Jesus Christ, how we pray for their salvation. But hear this theme again of just this deliverance, God passing over and and 
providing salvation for them. It's that major theme of God's word, redemption and deliverance from bondage and slavery into life and salvation through God. The term out of Egypt is used 62 times in God's word where you will hear oftentimes how he's delivered them out of Egypt. That's a continuous reminder for readers of the Bible and, and, and for much of Israel's history of what God has done and provided for them in delivering them. And how he's done so to set them apart to him. This sacrifice now would be repeated millions of times throughout history as Jewish households would continue to, to offer up you know, these, these sacrifices to the Lord. Josephus, the ancient historian, said that during Passover, several hundred thousand lambs were brought through the streets of Jerusalem in preparation for the sacrifice at, at Passover. Imagine all that blood that would be shed. And the amazing thing is lamb after lamb, year after year, century after century, millions and millions uh, uh, of sacrifices made and yet that blood was insufficient to remove the sins of the people we needed something greater we needed someone greater it says in hebrews 10 verse 3 but in those sacrifices there's a reminder of sins every year you have to keep coming back and doing it because it doesn't take it doesn't complete it doesn't purify it doesn't deliver there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. He goes on to say in verse nine of Hebrews 10, then he said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great, guys? Once for all. No longer do we need to gather a lamb. We have the Lamb of God who was sacrificed once and for all. The work is complete. Job's done. Atonement has been provided for. Covering, salvation, deliverance. Oh, I pray that we have received that and are enjoying it and walking in it. It's important to note that as it says there, uh, oh, what verse is that in? That when the destroyer comes now, when the destroyer comes, that's either an angel of the Lord or it's uh, you know figurative personification of God himself, most likely an angel of the Lord. As that came over each house, he wasn't looking to see how good the people were in the house. He was looking simply to see if they had applied the blood on the outside of the house. Did they have a covering over them? Isn't that great? Our, our salvation and righteousness is not based on our worthiness. It's not based on how good we are. It's based on what Jesus has provided for us. You're either standing in Christ and are safe or you are relying on some other means for salvation and are not experiencing peace and safety. The question is, are you in Christ? Those people that were in the house under the covering. God wasn't doing a little checklist on them, checking to see who's naughty or nice. He's simply realizing they are under the covering. I'm so grateful for that. I think far too people in Christianity today fully comprehend grace and the, and the righteousness that is 
given freely in and through Jesus Christ to where we're not trying to earn our way. We simply rest under the covering that's been provided through Jesus Christ. That blood atonement that was made as that covering for us. We stand now in that righteousness of Jesus Christ as we put our trust and our faith in him and what he's done for us. Not just believing he was, but again, like we talked about earlier, applying what he's done to ourselves. It's those that apply the blood that, that don't just look to Jesus as a sacrifice that, that once is done, but now it's applying what that means to our lives. And when you apply that to your life, you now are covered in that righteousness of Jesus Christ to where God doesn't look at you and try to go through a little checklist if you've done this, done that, done that. It's are you in Christ? That's all that was seen with these people. They're in the house that's covered. As Christ or as those that are in Christ, we're covered, covered in his righteousness. And in verse 29, it came to pass at midnight the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So here's that 10th plague now unfolding just as God has prepared them. The 10th and final plague. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all the servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So this tenth plague now comes with fullness, finality, and great fury. God has given Pharaoh and all these people chance after chance to turn, to respond, to repent, and Pharaoh's hardened his heart, hardened his heart. And now he experiences the full power of what God would do. Pharaoh's been obstinate. And he's, remember, brashly asked there in, in Exodus chapter five, verse two, who is the Lord? <laughs> who is the Lord that I should obey him and, and follow him? It's like, we've got lots of gods here, but this Yahweh, I don't, who's that? Not asking inquisitively, making a statement confidently as though, who's this God? I don't need him. Who is the Lord? Now Pharaoh knows clearly who Yahweh is. And now he's even asking for Moses and more so for the God of Moses to bless him. At the end there, verse 32 also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Sad. Pharaoh's heart has been hard. And God has brought him to a place of brokenness, of seeing his own weakness and futility. Sadly, this isn't a, a, a breaking out of salvation, but it's a, a breaking of Pharaoh understanding that He's insufficient. That his gods are insufficient. God's purpose is to lead us to repentance. It's about changing our mind and turning to him. 
Pharaoh desired to do this on an intellectual level, seeing all that God has done. Oh, go, go, Moses, take your people, go away from us, bless me also. He's wanting to do it on an intellectual level, thinking, can I get some kind of, of help from this? But he's not willing to do it from a heart issue. His heart was still not ready to bow down and yield to the Lord. That's very obvious because it doesn't take long for Pharaoh to go, we gotta go and get those guys back. And he just backtracks on, on everything that he's kind of even thinking right now because it's not a hard issue for him right now. Or it's not penetrated to the heart, I should say. So Pharaoh tells Moses and his people to go, not just to go and serve the Lord, but he says there, rise, go out from among my people. Just as God had said earlier in, in Exodus 11, verse one, that the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Exodus 11, verse one. It's not just that he's gonna let them go. It's like, he's gonna drive you out of here. He's gonna see like, you guys get out of here now. You guys have not been making things easy for me here. You gotta go. He's gonna drive them out. Rise, go out from among my people now. And verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Verse 37, then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also on flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Verse 40, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance of the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. That is that night of the Lord, a solemn, or this is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. So what's great is that as Israel is now given the green light to go. It's a short window. Like I say, Pharaoh's gonna come down on them. Short window, they, they have the freedom to go now, but they go and they receive compensation for their years of service in Egypt. And they have favor. They're going to, nobody in Egypt's going, what, why are you taking gold? No way, I'm not giving my gold. No, they're like, take it. You know, just whatever it's gonna take for you guys just to go and <laughs> stop bringing plagues upon our land here. They, they're compensated for all their years of service. I mean, just imagine this scene of the Egyptians. They're, they're out burying their dead and the Israelites with their families intact now marching beside them, going past them. The Egyptians were probably happy to see them leave and hope this would be an end to all their troubles. They were more, more than willing to aid them in their expenses. But the idea behind, it says in verse 36, um, thus they plundered the Egyptians. It, it has in mind this idea of Israel being victorious over Egypt, over a defeated Egypt. Numbers 33, verse three to four says that they departed from Ramses in the first month 
On the 15th day, the first month, on the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them also. On their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. That's so cool. So many of these Egyptians are realizing these people are the real deal. More so, their God is the real deal. They're burying their dead and they're seeing all these Israelites moving along, families fully intact. Nobody's mourning. Nobody's grieving. They're celebrating. They're, they plundered the Egyptians. They, they are walking in victory now over a defeated Egypt. And notice the exactness of how God leads. Because it says, on the very day of their 430th anniversary in Egypt. It says, on the very day now, they were led out, taken to the land of Egypt. As they come out, we see again the accuracy and the fulfillment of God's word. First of all, we see the fulfillment of Genesis 15, verse 14. Saying, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. God prophesied that to Abraham. Oh, they're going to be in a land for 430 years. It's not going to be easy, but they're going to come out with great possessions. We see the fulfillment of Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Here they come out with 600,000 men. That's just counting the men. If you had women and children, there very well could be two million, two to three million. We're not sure, but the number is huge. This family that came to Egypt in, in the number 70, 70 people going to Egypt, this family has grown, grown greatly. As God said, they will be a great nation. And here they are coming out of Egypt as a great nation. And we see the fulfillment of Genesis 12, verse three, saying, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And notice, as they came out of Egypt, there's a mixed multitude with them. Verse 38. These are the ones that aren't descendants of Abraham, but they saw the work that God did in Egypt and notice they believed. They're like, I want to stay with these people rather than stay in my land and serve a bunch of worthless, made-up gods. I want to follow these people. Now, that mixed multitude is going to, at least some of them are, are going to prove to be a bit of a handful for Moses and a bit of, uh, be a bit problematic for Israel. But nonetheless, here now, Israel is being that witness that they have been called to be. And nations now are going to be blessed by them as they are themselves coming out of a dead place and coming into life now in and through the Israelite people. They're ready to follow God's people in hope rather than remain in Egypt without hope. So reading along here, verse 43, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of it, the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money when he has circumcised him, that, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Anyone now that wanted to participate in 
observance of Passover and continue to you know, celebrate that year after year, they need to be circumcised. Why so? Because this was more than just a mere observance. Celebrating the Passover didn't make one right with God. It was faith in the promises of God that were given to Abraham. Circumcision was that sign of that covenant that God made with Abraham, a, a sign of the promises that were given. So to participate in the celebration of what God had done, one needed, first of all, to put their faith in what God has already declared. Basically, there's no stronger way than showing your faith than by getting circumcised. That takes a lot of faith to do that as a fully grown man. So that's a great indicator of your faith that you're ready to go all in for the Lord. As much like communion today, not the circumcision stuff, but how we <laughs> encourage unbelievers not to partake of communion because this is something we don't just do as kind of a, a tradition, as just kind of some religious observance. This is something we do because we're believers who have understood that we are observing what Christ did to save us. We're commemorating, we're remembering what Jesus has done for us. That's something that an unbeliever can't do because they haven't applied that to themselves. We do that in remembrance of the salvation that Jesus has provided for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection. It also says there that nor shall you break one of its bones in verse 46. See, blood is produced in the bone marrow. Don't ever think that Christ's atonement is limited as some would like to teach. Just as this lamb would not have any bones broken, neither did Jesus have any bones broken? John chapter 19, verse 36 makes reference to that. His atonement is sufficient for us all. Well, listen, chapter 13 is not a long chapter and I don't have a whole lot to go through. Are you guys okay if we go through it? Chapter 13? All right. You good with that? Okay. You know by now that regardless of how you answered, I was probably just gonna do it anyway. So you're all just like, I'm not even gonna answer because we know, Brent, you're just gonna do it anyways. Okay. And there's a lot of kind of repetition here a little bit. Uh, so we'll, we'll move through it quickly. Verse one, chapter 13, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both a man and beast, it is mine. So God spared the firstborn of Israel in Egypt. And, and now, these firstborns are to be consecrated to the Lord. That simply means to be set apart. They're to be given over, set apart to the Lord. In Exodus 4, verse 22 to 23, God says that Israel is his son, his firstborn. He calls all of Israel his firstborn. So whatever or whomever God has delivered, God wants them to be set apart for him. He's done a work not just to save you and let you go and do your own thing. He saved you so that you can live for him and unto him, that you might be set apart to the Lord now. Chapter 12, the lamb died for the deliverance of life. And as a result, the firstborn was redeemed. The price was paid. We too have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. We're not our own. We've been bought at a hefty price. And when we consider all that Jesus has done for us. Being indebted to Christ is not too much to ask. Living life for him and in him is actually a blessing. This is not a, this is not a, a burden. This is not an obligation on something we're like, well, okay, you know, I guess I have to do it. It's like Jesus 
There's no greater life than to live life in you and for you. Giving him our best shouldn't be an afterthought for us who have experienced his salvation. So Moses once more now, starting verse three, gives a, a reiteration and expansion now of the Feast of Unleavened Bread along with now the proper observance of it. So it says in verse three, Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month Abib, remember Abib later became known as Nisan. And it shall be, verse five, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month, seven days. Again, you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up, up, up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed the Passover just as we, as we cannot expect to live free from sin until we first experience the deliverance through the blood of Jesus, through his sacrifice, and we've applied Jesus to our lives. We, we can't expect to enjoy, you know, Feast of Unleavened Bread. This comes after Passover, after recognizing what Jesus has done for us. It's interesting that this week-long feast now will end in a feast. It's gonna be a cause of celebration. Verse six, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. I thought the whole thing was a feast. Yes, it is, but on the end, that seventh day, you're gonna have a feast. You're gonna celebrate all that, that God's done. Something that, you know, living consecrated lives to the Lord is gonna be boring, mundane. It's gonna be just miserable, like I have to live, you know, holy unto the Lord. Oh my goodness, that's gonna be so, all my fun's gonna be taken away from me. But look at this, a feast of unleavened bread. On the seventh day, you're gonna have a feast to the Lord. It's gonna be time for a party, time to celebrate. See, it's the life that is indeed lived in the Lord and for the Lord that experiences true joy and peace and blessing. Don't ever, don't ever think that you're missing out by walking away from the world, by being delivered out from the world that you're missing out. Don't ever think that there's fun that you're giving up on. Oh, the real fun, the real joy, the real blessing is found in living life for Jesus, the very author of life. There's no greater way to live life. Oh, may we as Christians not be walking around, oh, well, I can't do that, I don't do that. I don't live like that. May we be walking and enjoying life, living the life, but living the life in Christ. Let us be that witness where the world sees, man, I, I really want what that person has because the world can't offer that. We have something far better in and through Christ. And we should be living our lives in a way that where we get to proclaim all that God has done for us. This feast was not something to do in private. It was something to be celebrated with others. Let it be an occasion Again, to share of the great things God has done in your life. Verse eight says, this is done as they're 
telling the children, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt. When people wonder what's going on, you're like, oh, we can say, oh, I'm living life this way because of what Jesus has done for me, delivering me out from the world, out from sin, bringing me from bondage into life and freedom in him. Oh, let us speak loudly about the great things God has done. Just as they're saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Verse nine, interesting, we see, you know, again, kind of the, the beginning, uh, the practice of wearing phylacteries. It, it, it tells here that they were to, um, as a sign on your hand as a memorial between your eyes, have the, the law of the Lord there. And, and so this became this practice of taking these boxes and putting these scriptures, the law in and, and, and the, the Shema and, and wrapping it around your wrist or wearing it as a headband with this big box on your forehead because you know, the Pharisees were doing this and they were, they were you know, uh, called out on it in Matthew 23 verse five because they were doing it all for show. They'd make their phylacteries really big. They would walk around you know, like, look at how much scripture I'm holding here on my forehead, right? And they would just want to be seen by that as this kind of act of, of, of religiosity. It was all hypocritical, doing it just for show. But that kind of, this is not something that God is saying that you need to do physically, but rather practically in a spiritual sense. Have God's word close by you. Have it, have it right there in your, in your mind, in your thinking, in the work that you're doing. Have, have the word of God active in your life. Verse 11 says, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? You shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, and Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontless between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So the law would, would take effect when they would come into the promised land. It would be at that time that the reminder of what God has done for them would be more necessary and needed. And in, in verse 12, the term set apart is literally uh, means to cause to pass over. So again, just kind of another reminder of what God has done. God's passed over you, he spared you, so now you are to set apart or, or cause to pass over that firstborn. All firstborn animals shall be given to the Lord. But all donkeys are gonna be redeemed by a lamb. If it's not redeemed, it'll perish. If Jesus then is the lamb, then I guess that makes us all a bunch of donkeys here. That's kind of what I guess the meaning is there. There's a lot, I don't know why the donkey gets off and uh, why their neck is broken if you don't redeem it. I'm not too sure about all that, but let's move on. All the firstborn sons also were to be redeemed. And that was originally to be a, a memorial now of God's redemption from Egyptian slavery, as were the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread. Later, we'll see in Numbers 18, that it was through the payment of silver that they would be redeemed. 
So again, God's just looking to have firstborn males set apart to the Lord. Again, as Israel, all of Israel is seen as God's firstborn. We're to be living lives consecrated, set apart unto the Lord. Verse 17, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Joseph knew that promise of the Lord. Joseph had faith and hope in God accomplishing all that he said he would do. So he's like, when I die, man, you make sure you gather my bones and and you take me with you because I know God's gonna provide a place for you just as he said he will. So they take Joseph's bones with them. So, verse 20, they took the journey from Sukkot and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. That's amazing. Love this. So we're just about wrapping up here, guys. We're end of chapter 13. Look at that. Done. But I just have about another 20 minutes worth of notes. That's all to cover. <laughs> I don't really. But, but interesting what we read there, that when God begins to lead them out, he didn't take them by the way the land of the Philistines, although that was near, although that was the the closer, perhaps more quicker route to get to where they were gonna go. God didn't lead them that way. Why? Because he knew if they went that way, there would be greater opposition for them. That might deter them. That might cause them to turn back and go, you know what? I'd rather, I'd rather deal with what I had in Egypt than have to face what I'd be facing in Philistine territory. So God leads them through a longer path. Maybe at times a more difficult journey, but you see, understand something, that, that God sees the big picture, God sees everything, and he is directing our steps every step of the way. And that time of journey and wilderness wandering can be a time for teaching and preparation. See, it was an easy thing getting the people out of Egypt, but it's gonna be a very much more difficult thing getting Egypt out of the people. And they're gonna battle through that. And God knows if I take them the easy way, man, it's not gonna be good for them. It's gonna cause them probably to run right back to Egypt and long for that. I'm gonna bring them through the wilderness way. It might be a longer journey, but it's gonna be a time of of preparation. It's gonna be a time of working in them. The Lord knows the journey. And we need to trust him to guide us in that which is ultimately for your good. That's what God's doing here with Israel. He's doing something that perhaps they're going and looking at, you know, their Apple Maps, GPS system going, God, why are you taking us this way? Recalibrate, reroute. This is a better way to go. But God says, it's not gonna be a better way for you. I have a better way for you. I'm working out something for your good. And it may seem like the more challenging route of the time, but we often fail to see the pitfalls of the route that we would have taken for ourselves. How we need to trust the Lord and let him order our steps and by faith follow him. They left from Sukkot. Sukkot means tents or booths. They're getting ready to be on a journey. It's gonna be a pilgrim for them. 
They're not going to be settling down anywhere quick. Sukkot would remind them, you're going to be enjoying tent life for a little while. It's going to be a time where you're going to be on the move, on the go. But their next stop was Etham, which means with them or their strength. With them. God is reminding them, I'm going to be with you here on this journey. I'm going to be your strength for you. Oh, it may not look like an easy road ahead, but in me, you're going to be equipped. You're going to find strength. I'm going to be with you. And, and, and nowhere is that more readily seen than in verses 21 to 22 where we see this constant presence of the Lord where he's a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Oh, in that wilderness journey, guess what? That cloud is going to provide great protection from the blistering, beating, hot sun. The cloud's going to provide shade for them, protection. God's not only just providing his presence, he's providing just blessing upon them. And then in the cool of the evening, it's going to be a pillar of fire that they're going to be able to see the presence of God, but also just provide that comfort and warmth for them. God is going to be taking care of every need. We're going to see that through this wilderness journey that we're going to be embarking on over the next couple weeks in our Wednesday night studies here. We're going to be seeing this wilderness journey which have great lessons for us, great application to us. But every step of the way, we see God faithfully leading and providing for them as he does for each and every one of us, starting right from the greatness of his salvation for us. Isn't it great? It's good news tonight here, my friends. Well, let's pray, worship team. Let's, uh, yeah, come on up. I'm over time, so let's, uh, let's pray. And you can lead us in a song here. Lord, we come before you tonight. And God, as we discuss and talk about that first Passover, what a, an incredible picture that has been of what you've done for us, Jesus how you died on a cross, your blood was shed. And that blood ultimately providing for us that atonement and covering. Life was sacrificed that, that life could be gained. And we've gained so much more than just life in you, Jesus. We have eternal life. Forgiveness of sin, we are, are so grateful. And I pray, Lord, that we would follow you wholeheartedly now living these lives that truly are set apart unto you to honor you give you praise and God we thank you that you're with us Lord though the journey ahead might not always be easy Lord we're promised that you're never going to leave us nor forsake us let us not fear or doubt when difficulty lies ahead let us with excitement and faith look at how we're going to see you act and work on our behalf to lead us through you do that God and we thank you for that so continue just to allow your word to just sit and rest and be planted in our hearts may it grow and just produce fruit in our lives here tonight we pray in your name amen